Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. I'm Ashani. And I'm Evan. Whoa. This is episode 26, One Does Not Simply See an Oliphant. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkienverse ahead. With that said, let's get right to it. Welcome back, friends. Uh, This week, we read chapters three and four of book four in The Two Towers. And in these chapters, there's a lot of walking. Uh, Frodo and Sam (laughs) and Gollum reach the Black Gate of Mordor and realize that there is no safe way for them to get into Mordor itself past the gate, given the number of guards and soldiers that Sauron has all around the area. And so Gollum proposes an alternate route. Uh, And in doing so, they encounter a couple of rangers who are going to become familiar faces for us, including Faramir, brother of Boromir. And I think to start us off, we should also say that, hey, Evan is here. (laughs) And Evan has very kindly agreed to guest on this episode of the podcast. And I think as we've done with all our guests so far, it would be great if you want to just tell us what's your story with Lord of the Rings. Uh, When did you first come to it? What do you like about it? What brought you to it? to agreeing to do this podcast with us. Yeah, of course. Um, I loved hearing all of your stories at the beginning of how you got to this. And I remember at the time thinking about my own. So it's really fun that I get to be here now and telling you this. Uh, I was an incredibly voracious reader as a kid. And I know I read The Hobbit when I was really young. And then I had just hit middle school and found out that there were some more books that were that came after The Hobbit. So that's when I tried to read Lord of the Rings. And I say tried because I think I was 12. And I don't know if I succeeded that first time at getting through uh, the trilogy. But by ninth grade, I was that kid like in their bedroom, uh, teaching themselves Elvish out of the back of Return of the King. And it was just mostly that Um, The idea that you could invent not just a story, but a whole world, and then invent a language for that world and a history, all of that just lit up my mind. And I already loved writing. So in some ways, I was reading these books to try to figure out how to make them work, like what works and what doesn't. Uh, Even then, I knew that I was never going to put whole songs written out in my books. Like I always skipped them when I read. But there were a lot of things in the stories that that really spoke to me mostly because I knew someone had made them up. So I loved them. I loved fantasy in general, specifically for that reason. And then I just never stopped loving the the seeds Tolkien had put down. I've come back to these books pretty frequently over the years. Like I, I wouldn't say I was ever part of a fandom, but I did kind of walk in and out of spaces where people really love this stuff. And then uh, the reason that this connected me to this podcast was actually because I know Ashani through other podcast things and uh, got excited because this style of thing is one of, something I really enjoy listening to. So I started listening. And then when I had the opportunity to come talk to you all and not just like listen to you and talk back out loud in my bedroom, uh, I thought it was really exciting. <laughs> not that I ever did that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, good, because I hate when people talk back to me. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. 
Well, welcome, Evan. We're really glad to have you here. So I think having now talked about how much we love Lord of the Rings, I think we got to talk about the elephant in the room, which is that this is yet another walking chapter that we have here. Um, But I think there were maybe some uh, mitigating factors uh, that made it less painful than previous walking chapters. And I think the one that we've all collectively identified is that this is a chapter where we get a lot of information about Sam. Um, And I'm curious just what you think about these chapters, what you think about Sam as a character, because we've now gotten the chance to spend quite a bit of time inside his head. Yeah, that guy's a damn philosopher. He's got some big thoughts about a lot of things. (laughs) Um, We get his thoughts on Gollum, like his take on uh, Gollum and Smeagol personalities. And then we later get his take on um, how much he loves Frodo and just like the, the environment around them. And then later at the end of the chapters, don't we also get his take on war, um, which is sort of maybe Tolkien's take on war as well. It's a dubious take. I'm not sure about it personally, but Mm. yeah, there's a lot of, it seems like he never really stops thinking and in a different way than like, it seems like we get Pippin never stopping thinking. There's a line where it describes his thinking, like it says Sam's thinking was shrewd, but slow. And that, uh, to me, that described it perfectly where, like, he's definitely having deep thoughts and we're seeing a lot of them. But at the same time, like, he's represented as this very salt of the earth kind of guy that just, like, he's not supposed to have these thoughts and he's not, like, expected to have these thoughts. So it's kind of interesting that we're getting to see... I've been watching, I've been rewatching a lot of Downton Abbey lately and it reminds me a lot of (laughs) the, like, upstairs, downstairs style of, like... None of the servants are expected to have any thoughts, but obviously they're humans and they do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I also spotted the slow but shrewd uh, thing because I thought that was really intriguing. Um, but it also matched, like he kind of mixes up thinking about really practical things. How much food are we going to need for this journey? Um kinds of things can we trust Gollum with these kind of more philosophical bigger thoughts about about the nature of the journey as a whole and his relationship to Frodo uh that I think is really fascinating and I think if we weren't inside Sam's head we might never get to see that because he doesn't say the deeper stuff out loud very often and I don't think Frodo asks him what he thinks about things all that often and I could be remembering that incorrectly, but I feel like their relationship is is much more one of maybe Sam offers an opinion sometimes, um, less than Frodo saying, what do you think is true here? Uh, so I think that that's really kind of fascinating. It was neat to be on the inside of his head. We definitely are given the chance to like love Sam Gamgee now. Uh, and of course I do from the beginning of the first time I ever read, he was the most relatable character uh in these books i loved him so much then and it's really neat to come back to it and still feel that way he is highly relatable i think because he like when he talks he often sounds like really whimsical but then you look into his head and that's not really what's going on in there yeah i thought one of the interesting things is like most of what we get from him in this chapter he's not actually saying out loud we just get like sam thought and then a big paragraph of his thoughts that are in dialogue format in the text, but he's not actually saying them out loud, so Frodo might actually not know any of this. Well, and the thing I find really interesting about Sam is that 
thus far throughout the books, the thoughts that Sam has verbalized often end up getting kind of dismissed or poo-pooed as like mm-hmm. Sam being fanciful. The whole thing about Sam like wanting to see elves, for instance, is like a thing he gets made fun of repeatedly in the text. But then you get these chapters where you get a lot of his insights, and I don't think he's really wrong about a lot of them, or at least not completely wrong. More of them feel accurate than don't with the things he's thinking about Frodo and the things he's thinking about Gollum. Like, even his observation of Frodo as being kind of, like, maybe committed to a bad choice a little bit um, and just not even really thinking about alternatives and just kind of willing to truck forward doesn't feel like... It, it seems like an accurate observation of what Frodo is going through. And when he's thinking about, like, Smeagol and Gollum might have some goals where they would form temporary truces, like, that seems plausible to me. So for all that Sam doesn't say a lot, and I get why if the things he says are not taken seriously, I also do think he's smarter and probably more observant than the other characters give him credit for. Right. It seems like his his thinking actually doesn't seem slow, but his decision making seems like very measured, right? As mm-hmm. like contrasted to like Pippin who is like <laughs> a decision-based lifestyle. It feels like whenever you get Pippin's inner monologue, you know. I I Pippin am is Pippin. the ADHD child. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I feel like um one little detail that kind of captures some of Sam is that Frodo straight up tells him, don't worry about food for the return journey. There won't be one. Mm-hmm. We will be dying. Like he says that. And Sam still plans out rations for the trip there and the trip back. He just doesn't tell Frodo that he's doing that because he, he just hears that and then refuses to accept that. Like he is so, I'd say deeply optimistic uh, that you know, it's not that he thinks they'll survive it, but he does think that he's going to go ahead and plan for them to survive it. And I really loved that. Yeah, it also seemed like he generally, like, everything he said was presented with a much more, like, cheerful attitude than any of the other characters. And it was kind of like a, as you're reading this and you're reading the descriptions of, like, the surrounding area and they're all so grim and what Frodo's doing is so grim and Gollum is so grim. And then you have this, like, breath of fresh air of Sam just being there, like, being like, oh, like, what should we do now? Like, what should we make now? Could you get some rabbits? <laughs> and his, like, positivity and his attitude is just kind of lifting these chapters up for me. And the bit where he looks at Frodo, who has an ethereal light about him, and thinks, I love him, and, and very straightforwardly uh, thinks that to himself, is right before the bit where he feeds him the rabbit stew. And I have written down rabbit stew is love. Uh, it was a very, it's just this very tender, intimate moment that one of them is asleep for, and then gets rabbit stew without necessarily knowing the emotion behind that for Sam. Yeah. And I think we got to talk about that moment. We have already talked before on the pod about queer readings of Tolkien and whether or not, you know, the way that like the word gay has been used to maybe very broadly paint the movies with a a certain brush. Um, And Wanda, you had a really good 
point about this in your notes that I don't want to steal, but you should say that now because it was really good. (laughs) Well, I was watching some clips from uh, Fellowship today. In particular, I was watching that last scene where Sam insists on going with Frodo, which makes me cry every time I see it. And I, I watched it in an isolated way for the very first time today. And I was like, oh, this is a very melodramatic movie. <laughs> and it occurred to me all of a sudden that, like, you know, in contrast to the books, the movies, I think, don't actually display that much queer-coded behavior between Frodo and Sam. But the movies are incredibly earnest. And mm. I think that people, you know, back when we back when the movies were coming out, which is when you know, the three of us were in middle school, it was really just impossible to sincerely like something that earnest without wanting to put some kind of distance between you and it, you know? And so, like, I my feeling about it is that people would call the movies gay or call Frodo and Sam in the movies gay just as a way of, like, just kind of distancing themselves from, like, the earnestness of the movies in general, even though they like the movies. Um, I think that when we talk about, like, the, you know, possible gayness of Frodo and Sam's relationship in the books, it's a very different thing. But that was, yeah, that was that was my take when I was watching those clips today. I watched a really interesting YouTube video about how, like, Lord of the Rings is a great representation of, like, non-toxic masculinity because it has so many main characters who are male who talk about their feelings and let each other know how they're doing and, like, yeah. you know... Especially like Aragorn uh, in the movies, I would say more so than the books, you know, is not hesitant mm-hmm. to say that he he loves his companions and that he respects them. And, you know, he's he's just but he's never like not masculine in those movies. <laughs> um, he's always like still coded as like a highly masculine guy and he still does all of this stuff. And I thought that was an interesting take because when I read this scene, I was like, oh, like. Sam is literally saying he loves Frodo and he's like watching him sleep. And this is a thing that you do when you romantically love someone, right? You don't like randomly watch your friends sleep and are like, oh, I love them. Uh, or maybe you that do. I you don't know. know of. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't know. It struck me as like a very intentionally romantically written scene. And I don't know. I, I, I hesitate to like say, yes, this is a gay relationship because I don't know whether that was the intent, but I think it can clearly be read as one and it's a very positive representation of one. Like this is, you know, a really beautiful friendship and potentially romance that these two have together and they're supporting each other maybe a little bit more from Sam (laughs) than Frodo, but in fairness, Frodo is carrying a bit of a heavier burden at the moment. But I don't know. I think I think if you do read it as a gay relationship, it's it's a great one. I was thinking like the same thing, Navia. I was when I was reading the chapters, I was like, you know, I don't actually read this relationship as a gay relationship, but maybe only because Frodo expresses his own emotions so little. <laughs> um, like there's there's a lot like we see we like see like Sam's feelings for Frodo, and then I guess there's like maybe Frodo has some feelings coming back the other way, but like, you know, I wouldn't nece- like I would not necessarily call it a gay relationship if only because it takes two to tango although they do romp on the bed at the end with gandalf laughing in the background (laughs) i mean there's plenty more relationship between the two of them that we'll get to see um and i know that as a teenager uh my reading of it was not that different from if i had seen it as romantic or 
as a gay romantic relationship. Mm. I am older than all of you. I desperately needed some kind of representation of queerness in my life. And so for me, whether or not it was on the page, the fact that this relationship was a loving, trusting, intimate relationship between two men who Mm -hmm. love each other and just rely on each other. I didn't care if they were kissing when the book wasn't looking. I did not care about that. But I needed that kind of relationship to be real. And in a very real sense, and I love what you said uh, about it being earnest, that relationship, like the movies being really earnest, that relationship is so, feels so real. Those two people feel so real uh, that whether you think of it as uh, homoromantic, homosexual, or, or hetero, or whatever, it still felt like good representation that men can love men, uh, mm-hmm. which I very desperately needed <laughs> and still need. But I do love the idea that when the movies came out, people were putting gayness into them in an attempt to to create distance, because I think you're spot on with that. And it's really interesting to hear you say that, because it, I think for all of us, we're going to have our own reading of it, but it really does hammer home for me how much the way in which you read things and the way in which things become meaningful for you is a matter of what you as a person want from the text and what you as a person are looking for. Because for me, when I read Sam going, well, I love him, whether or no, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think all of us would have sat there and gone like, well, that's just a really lovely, very sincere and earnest declaration of love. And for me, I really like reading it as platonic, not because I don't love me some queer relationships in text, but because I so rarely get to see books where platonic relationships are as or more important than romantic ones. And as an ace, probably arrow person, like, man, those are thin on the ground. And so it's really powerful, like reading that as platonic for me is really powerful because it's similarly something I I don't get to see a whole lot. And I also could obviously read it as a romantic declaration. I'm certainly not opposed to reading it as a romantic declaration. I think probably depending on the day and the mood and the position of the stars, I will read it either as platonic or romantic, depending on how I'm feeling. But like in the moment, just this time reading it through, I was like, oh, it's really lovely to see people just sincerely be able to say that they love their friends and that that relationship can Mm -hmm. be so meaningful. Do you think that's like one of the best parts of this, though, is that it's not clear what this is? And it just feels like a really genuine, like love between two people that can be interpreted any way you need it to be interpreted for yourself. Because I think like, all of us go through relationships in our lives where we love someone and it is maybe not clear what kind of love that is. And we don't know, does this have the potential to turn into something romantic? Or is this the love of friendship? Or is this the love of family? Or whatever it might be. And those boundaries get blurred a lot of the time. And I think one of the great things about this is just like, maybe maybe it's good that we don't know, right? That whether Sam is romantically loving Frodo or platonically loving Frodo or both, or, you know, somewhere in between. And that's why, like, we can each read it in the way that is most beautiful to us. Yeah. I do want to toss a perspective that might be unique in this room, which is that I have absolutely watched someone sleeping and had those same thoughts that I love them um, no matter what in this moment. And it's my children. 
So that overpowering sense of platonic parental love Mm -hmm. is one a very and Sam is in no way a parent to Frodo, uh, but he is sure looking after him and taking care of him. And so I can also resonate with it in that way. Uh, It was a really familiar way to read that passage. Yeah, you know what? That's a really good point. I want to retract my earlier statement because when I thought about it a little bit more, I was like, actually, I have had that experience. My my brother is much younger than me. And when he was a little kid and I was much older, it was that was exactly how I felt. Like I would watch him sleep and be like, I've never loved something this much, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's a pretty overwhelming feeling. And so that that's just another valid lens. I think there's a lot of ways to see this moment. And it feels similarly powerful uh kind of Mm -hmm. no matter which way i look at it it's a really like important moment in a relationship i think when you realize how much you care about somebody sam doesn't seem surprised by his feelings i think uh i think he knows why he's there which is weird because he's also like when we brought this up before but he's also working for frodo you know and the kinds of care that he shows to frodo as a friend or lover whatever you however you want to interpret it is like is there's a weird sort of overlap there, right? It's like, oh, there's no coincidence that you're making this guy some stew. Um, (laughs) It's not just because you're good at it and you love him. It's also because, well, you're working for him. I want to bring up a hot take that is like sort of relevant to this. So obviously we know that Sam is highly suspicious of Gollum this whole time and that he like really doesn't like him. Do you think any part of that is like jealousy? Because Gollum is getting a lot of attention from Frodo at this point and he is so necessary to Frodo's end goal because of the situation that they're in. I felt like there was a little bit of maybe irrational hatred towards Gollum in in Sam's tone. I could definitely read it as the kind of jealousy of somebody who has poured all of this love and devotion and time and energy into caring for someone. And then, I mean, we have to remember it like last book, Not that long ago for these characters, Frodo tried to leave Sam behind, Mm. right? And then here he is. At this point, he has not really said, like, oh, I'm glad you're with me, Sam. I think we're going to get to that at some point, but he's not really there yet. He's basically like, okay, well, you're tagging along and, like, that's fine. But Gollum, he chooses to bring along. And that might sting a little bit. I thought that the situation with Gollum was, was, like, just interesting to like go a little astray for a second because the choice to bring Gollum along is like very much like a it's just an alternative to killing him Mm -hmm. right like that's they don't Frodo doesn't bring him because he has any positive feelings about him but like you're saying Navia like it gets really like it really quickly pivots to like oh we need this guy for some weird reason like all of a sudden we're at the black gate which is closed due to COVID-19 and uh, we <laughs> can't get back. Uh, so we're going to have to take Smeagol's way. And now, and, and Frodo actually says like, I really wish that I wasn't in this situation, but I have to trust you again. And, at, you know, at first when, when you said, do you think that Sam is jealous of Gollum? I was like, hell no, because it's not like in the movies where Frodo has this kind of immediate bond with Gollum. Like in the books, it really seems like Frodo is keeping some real distance there, mm-hmm. but nobody can deny that he is dependent on Gollum. And furthermore, Gollum is kind of like doing this perverted, like mimicking of like the master servant relationship, which maybe Sam thought he had on lock. Yeah. That one, the master's already got the perfect servant. Thank you very much. And it is me. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, but Sam is also lost because Gollum is obviously up to something here. And I think both Sam and Frodo know it. But at the same time, they don't have a lot of options. Like, Gollum is not wrong. They cannot just walk into the Black Gate. They will immediately be caught and the ring will just be returned to Sauron. And so they are in a position where, like, they do kind of need Gollum. And I think Sam knows that. And so he's really, you know, stuck in this place where he's like, I hate this guy and I know he's up to no good and I know that it's not good for us, but I don't have an alternative because he knows this land and I don't. Yeah. And that's the worst jealousy, too. Mm. I get jealous a lot and I feel like that's the worst kind of jealousy is when you just know how irrational it is because it the situation is completely out of your control. It's not even about, you know, the person that whose attention you want making the wrong choice. It's just about this person that, like, you can't help that they're there, you know? I don't know that it excuses, but it kind of explains the degree of Sam's pettiness in (laughs) Chapter 4, because, man, is he petty about, like, he basically tells Gollum, go do me a favor and catch some rabbits, and then Gollum brings the rabbits back, and Sam's like, well fuck you, I'm going to cook them even though you don't want me to. And if you want your own food, you can go get it. And then he's like, okay, now do me another favor and get me some herbs. And when mm-hmm. Gollum's like, I don't want to do you a favor, Sam's like, well, then I'll just kill you, which is... Yeah, I'll seems, stick your head in the boiling water. Yeah, it seems disproportionate. Yeah, he was giving me some major Gordon Ramsay vibes in this chapter. <laughs> <laughs> kitchen nightmares i could totally see kitchen nightmares where gordon ramsay is like i'm gonna stick your head in this boiling water if you don't do this oh no (laughs) yeah sam was quite a bully in that in that bit and since i feel like the central tension of these chapters is just like are we gonna trust Gollum and how much having sam bullying him into doing stuff for him was an interesting way to kind of explore that Because it's not like he was ever like, you know what, I'm sure it'll be okay if I run to the river for four minutes. Because he definitely Mm -hmm. doesn't trust him alone with Frodo for any amount of time. I think there's a lot of Tolkien like constantly trying to remind us why we pity Gollum in this. because, Or like why we should pity him. Because um, that's kind of central to why he's still around, right? Because there is some amount of Mm. Frodo and his initial pity that prevented him from killing him. And I think Tolkien like really needs to justify that every once in a while for us to not be like, okay, why is this guy still here? <laughs> and it's those moments where, you know, Sam is a bully or he or Frodo is like exercising his power over him where he's just so helpless and pitiable that you're like, okay. Yeah, it is shitty the way that Sam treats Gollum though, because it's like, yeah, 100% Gollum made a promise to them, but also like he had, he had literally had no choice sparing his life. Every time you extract something from this guy, you're exploiting him. Yeah. Do you either want to die or make this promise that you don't want to make? <laughs> right. And like going back for a second, in the movie, it seems like Frodo kind of becomes chill with Gollum after a while and begins to treat him as more of like a member of their company as opposed to just like a, a slave. So far in these chapters, Frodo has been very clear saying not only are you in for a world of hurt if you do not comply? Um, but I will I will punish you by putting on the ring and using the power of the ring. I will order you to kill yourself. Which was, I thought that was kind of intense, personally. He also watched him writhing on the ground in pain for several minutes, screaming, 
um, when he right. had a rope on him and just kind of watched that and was like, huh, what do we do now? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of like them watching Go- Gollum writhe in pain, even in this chapter. Like Frodo makes his spiel about how he's going to make Gollum kill himself. And then uh, he's like, anyway, so uh, what's this route you've got? And Gollum definitely like needs a minute before he can like go on and talk about that. <laughs> Which, okay, can we go back to the paragraph where Frodo is like, oh, well, if I wanted to, I could put on the ring and then you would have to obey me? Because that really, I mean, I don't want to, t- <laughs> spoilers, right? But <laughs> we know that at the end of this path, Frodo- Yeah, he gets his chance. Yeah, like has the ring on his finger, could have told Gollum- to just jump in the lava, but doesn't. And then Gollum does, in fact, fall in the lava, which is what Frodo says he could do to him here. So I feel like this paragraph was like Tolkien writing and then going, oh, that's not a bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to use that later. But also, this is like a new take on this promise that was not at all clear up until this point and also Mm -hmm. never comes up. He never does this. Yeah, presumably because if he puts on the ring, then he has to deal with the fact that he's like in Mordor. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like yeah. I, I think there's a reason why he doesn't, but it's interesting that he even seems so sure that he could. I want to see the contract that is based on this promise because it seems to be growing every day. <laughs> well, and what Gollum actually swore is that he would obey the ring bearer which I thought was interesting wording. And I kept thinking is, but but I know the rest of the books. So it's not like that's going to become a loophole for Gollum in any significant way. But it seemed mm-hmm. awfully clever. I love that you pointed that out. Because we absolutely were like, this is a loophole. <laughs> Even Gollum says it's a loophole in the previous chapter, right? He's like, ooh, but what if I was the ring bearer? <laughs> yeah. No, so you're absolutely validating past <laughs> Ashani, Navia, and Wanda um, with that observation. Because it's true. Like, the promise is super vague, and we keep learning more things about Frodo's control over Gollum and also about Gollum himself. I think this is the first time we really see repeated reminders of, like, a green gleam coming into his eyes, an evil light coming into his eyes. We get that description a couple of times in relatively mm-hmm. close succession in these chapters. And so I think that's the maybe the balance to making him seem pitiable is that we also get this reminder of, yes, and this is somebody who uh, straight up murdered his friend <laughs> to get the ring before he had really been exposed to it. Also, when uh, when someone that you're considering trusting gets a green gleam in their eye, you should think twice about that choice. He also gets it when he's just real hungry. <laughs> right. I was like, maybe that's just Gollum's thing. He does, I think, have some sort of night vision. So theoretically, it could just be like the way that night vision eyes, you know, like cats and stuff. Right. When you see them in the dim light, their eyes do the weird green glow thing. Yeah. So maybe he's just got like kitty eyes. And they just happen to flash when he thinks about killing things. I mean, there is no evidence that that's not also what happens with cats. (laughs) Fair. I had one Gollum note that I wonder if anyone else had it jump out at them. In his whole, no, 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 don't go through the gate. Don't give the, you'll just be giving the ring to Sauron. Little explosive spiel. He says he will eat up the world. And we have not had any evidence that Gollum cares about anyone but Gollum. 
until right then. And I just, the fact that even this ultimate survivor of a creature, because that's, that's what he is more than anything, that he's saying as his, like, don't do this argument, he'll destroy us, he'll destroy the whole world, really struck me. Like, it made me like him more. Mm-hmm. It's like, again, like, kind of a different take than we get in the films where Gollum is like, I identify with you, Frodo, because, you know, we're both ring bearers. And he plays on Frodo wanting the ring to get the ring himself. But here he's actually, he's making more of the utilitarian argument for not taking the ring straight into Sauron's hands. It feels like the movie puts a lot more emphasis on the influence of the ring than the book seems to. Mm. Like on Gollum? On both of them. I mean, we are not even really getting much from Frodo in these chapters, but the movie is constantly showing us how he's like getting more and more tired looking. And, you know, there's a couple of scenes of him like almost putting the ring on and stuff like that. None of that is here. And it's almost like every time we're reminded of the ring, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's a ring here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The one other change kind of going along with that is that. Sauron is all not much more of a character, but a little bit more of a character in the book than he is in the movie. And that piece of like Gollum is not just enthralled by the ring, but he also has experience with and feelings about Sauron as a bad dude not to be messed with. Yeah. And, and Sauron's actions are also not wholly to get the ring back as they're kind of represented in the movies, right? He is waging an entire separate war here. Mm -hmm. Another example of that is when he's explaining he can't watch all of the places all of the time. Like, Sauron isn't some omnipotent evil. He actually has to make decisions about where to send his guards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that brings us back neatly to Faramir, because it is really a war being waged on multiple fronts. The ring is a part of it, but it's not the entirety of it and so that's why like that's why we do meet Faramir is because there's this whole other piece of like no Sauron is bringing troops in and so Faramir and his little band of very Robin Hood-esque merry men are trying to (laughs) disrupt that process yeah they're like waging defensive guerrilla warfare what are his men's names (laughs) it's like Damrod and what was it and (laughs) Mablung Very good. Yeah, he was like, I'm going to describe these dudes so that everybody thinks they're really hot, and then I'm going to give them the worst names (laughs) in the world. I, yes. I love how silly they are. They're like, they're like objectively like hot guys in like little Robin Hood outfits. They're waging like (laughs) defensive guerrilla warfare for some reason, and they speak elvish, but they have no idea what an elf looks like. They're just like, That's like, I don't know, for some reason, it's just like, it's like white people. Like, I I can't, like, that's what I kept thinking about when I was, like, thinking about them. I had forgotten, again, that there were, they're Dunedain, and they're, like, the other, the older race of men, like, Aragorn is one, too. They live longer, etc. That's why they're speaking something like Elvish. It's, and I had just forgotten there were any of them still here, too. Yeah, I have kind of a logistical question about the rangers. Uh... (laughs) So, are they all Dunedain? Does that mean that Faramir is also a Dunedain? I don't know. Because I was under the right. impression... Because he's the captain of the Rangers. Yeah, but he's also just the son of Denethor, so... Right, and Denethor seems like a normal dude. I kind of wonder if it's a question of, like, 
how I, I can't think of a better word to say other than like pure blooded. Right. But that people could be like, oh, my grandfather was one of the Dunedain and now like I'm a a quarter of that. So maybe my lifespan is a little longer than average, but it's not like I'm going to live 150 years longer. And like, maybe we still speak the language, hmm. uh, but we don't remember where we got it, you know, or something like that. Yeah. 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 So the wiki calls them the rangers of the South and they're distant cousins of the rangers in the North. So yeah, maybe what you're saying about like how closely related they are. I don't know. It's kind of confusing because if they were rangers, I would have thought that they would like know about Aragorn. He's been gone a while. But Aragorn was up in the north, right? Yeah, so he's like, I guess there's two sets of rangers. Or maybe there are more. Maybe there are eastern and western rangers, too. We don't know. Yeah. Maybe rangers is just like Boy Scouts. It's more of a program. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps. That could be. Maybe Faramir's title as captain of the rangers is like one of those honorary things because he happens to be a prince. They're like, okay, you can be captain. (laughs) Kind of like how the royal family yes, always like, oh my serves God. in the military. Yeah, Faramir takes it a little too far. <laughs> I got the impression from the books and, and again in this chapter that Faramir got this job where it was incredibly dangerous and he was probably going to die. And Boromir got the job that Denethor thought was better. Yeah. <laughs> and more prestigious. The safer one, yeah. It really struck me that Faramir was really convinced he was about to die. This the whole This whole encounter. He's like, listen, if I come back... I mean, he's literally, like, then. waging war right next to yeah. Mordor, yeah. How is he not? He was just dying? like, uh, if I survive today, we'll talk about this more. Bye. <laughs> yeah. That's such a wild thing, too. He was, like, literally just like, oh, there's not enough time for this conversation right now. I have to go almost die again. See ya. And then his men were like, somehow he seems charmed. We're not sure why he's not dead yet. <laughs> I mean, it does kind of raise the question of, like, What's the turnover rate like in Faramir's company? Because you kind of have to imagine that if they're doing all this really dangerous stuff, like other people probably are dying. Yeah. So what is their mission? Like, are they just trying to distract Sauron? Are they actually trying to prevent him from entering Gondor? They're just doing defensive attrition at this point, right? That like whatever you'd call that, because like in these chapters, they're trying to prevent the men of Harad, Harold from getting to Mordor and just by doing like a <laughs> Harold the single man of Herod. <laughs> yeah, because Ithilien is no longer really anyone's land and I think they're trying to interfere right. so mm. that Mordor can't use it as a staging ground to attack Gondor. So they just keep hanging out by whatever river it is, the Anduin, and they keep they keep hanging out there and then they'll cross and and do a couple little like harrying maneuvers and then run away again. It struck me that like when when Tolkien called Ithilien the Garden of Gondor, um, that if that was not meant in a romantic sense, which it might have been, it might have been a reference to Ithilien being farmland or just land where like food and products come from in some way. And it was interesting because like you're getting a clue actually of how Sauron has already weakened Gondor because he's he has made it impossible to actually you know walk around there and gather herbs and stuff. Yeah, Sam mentions that he's sure there would be potatoes there. Like, it's it's a uh, good gardening land. Sam's casual ask of Gollum to be like, yeah, go find some, like, thyme and rosemary or whatever. Like, Gollum even knows what those things are. <laughs> 
That is a very valid point. If somebody was like, please go out into the wilderness and find me some rosemary, I'd be like, you are so out of luck. Like... But yeah, to your point, Wanda, I think it's really interesting that um, Tolkien always resisted uh, anybody saying that the Lord of the Rings is like a metaphor in any direct way for war or the particular wars that he was in. Um, Because the thing that seems obvious to me is that his knowledge of wartime strategy and practices during war are very clearly represented in these books, even if nothing is a direct metaphor to that particular war. And I know, Wanda, you had said you weren't sure how you felt about Sam's reflection on the nature of war. Um, But it was something that I quite enjoyed because Sam basically sees one of the soldiers that Faramir or his men have killed uh, and reflects on the fact that this man probably or like entirely possibly didn't want to be here uh, and didn't really sign up for what he wound up having to do and may have been coerced or manipulated, like lied to was actually the phrase that Tolkien uses in order to join this this fight and it really made me think about like not only what the recruitment or drafting would have been like for soldiers in World War 1 and World War 2 but even you hear about like predatory recruitment strategies that the US army does today in terms of like going into these low income schools and promising these kids like you can have all of this stuff if you join the military yep, and you're college. going after the people who are most vulnerable and i'm not saying that's like all recruitment ever, but it absolutely does happen. Yep. Do you guys remember reading the book All Quiet on the Western Front? I thought about that book so much during this chapter, actually. Mm. Yeah, because that book is told from the perspective of a German soldier, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very relevant to, like, the German experience during World War One. Yeah. It is kind of that, like, representation for people who may have been, you know, on the other side of that war of like we were all kind of going through the same things as soldiers maybe yeah yeah i mean in world war one was like i think that was that had a big impact on a lot of people probably from tolkien's generation just the obvious senselessness of world war one um but i still thought it was like it was interesting that we get you know sam when he sees the fallen harad soldier you know saying i you know i wonder if this guy really is evil i wonder if he was he was just manipulated to come here and there's that, but then we don't get that when they talk about the wild men, mm. right? And there's there's no there's there's really no nod to that when you know Pippin and Mary are in uh, in Rohan, um, and you know like the you know maybe witnessing like some of the 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 Rohirrim, right? Or when we go along with like Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas when they're it's that part of the story is like strictly mythical, right? It's 100% hero forward. Mm. Yeah, I mean, for that matter, like, do orcs have feelings? We don't know. Yeah, I mean, and like, and I think specifically, like, the Sam paragraph where he talks about, like, oh, is this guy really evil? It begins, this was Sam's first experience of war between men and men. Um, so I'm like, oh, okay, I guess, like, wild men just don't count. That's fine. Well, Sam wasn't there for the wild men. No, but we're there as readers, right? Yeah. Like, there's an opportunity. And, like, just thinking back to, like, how 
in my opinion, like the the depiction of the wild men was like extremely degrading, mm-hmm. especially given that they were basically like a just a nomadic people that had been forced out of their land by the combined powers of Rohan and Gondor. And I I guess like my like my cynical take on all this was like oh this is like this paragraph with Sam and Sam's feelings is just like oh it's just like Tolkien trying to g- give a nod to how horrific all of this stuff is, but he doesn't like really have like an anti-war stance. But what did you guys think? I don't know that I viewed it as cynically. I I kind of thought it was just maybe a thought that he had during wartime that he directly transcribed into this book. Right. Yeah, I definitely am kind of struck by that that reading and that contrast. All of that is happening at the same time as Sam has seen an oliphant, which is the thing he wanted more than anything, right? Right. So yeah. In to me, it was the fact that there's this thing he really wanted in his fanciful way that he's only seeing in this horrific wartime context. And then he's also having these ideas about whether this warrior is really evil or just another person like himself. And so what I caught was that contrast that these could be beautiful moments and they're not because that's what war does. Right. But I was seeing it less as like a massive statement Tolkien was making and more as a a very characterization of, of Sam moment. He is not a hero. He does not want to be a hero. And he's having the thoughts that like heroes aren't allowed to have. And maybe the whole point is that like, you know, compared to Aragorn, as we've like discussed so many times on this show, like how not personally likable Aragorn is, <laughs> like we like Sam better and we relate to Sam more. And so we're probably inclined to like take in more of his viewpoints as our own. Or maybe Sam is also more likely to have these kinds of thoughts than Aragorn is because he hasn't seen much of the world and he doesn't know what to make of war, whereas Aragorn is much more experienced in that way. Yeah, like one of the things that like continues to be uh, strange to me about this series is how, on the one hand, it's like a story about heroes and kings, right? Um, and it's absolutely not like an everyman kind of story. And yet, like, the other part of the story is is very much that. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's maybe like the dichotomy that Tolkien might have experienced himself is that you can sit there and go, there are times when a tremendous amount of violence may be the only way forward, right? You can sit there and argue about whether or not like there were ways to prevent that situation from coming to that point. But I think you can say like there are situations where you are so deeply entrenched in this conflict or there are abuses that are being committed that are so horrific or somebody is out there who wants to do something so awful that the only way to stop it is to go to war. And at the same time, the human cost of what that does to people, of what that does to individuals, has to be looked at not on this grand heroic scale, but also needs to be looked at in terms of the way it disrupts families and individual lives, right? That every man perspective. And I think that might be something that Tolkien himself, I mean, I'm totally speculating, right? But I think that's probably something where it's not as simple as being pro-war or anti-war. I think you can sit there and go, something can be necessary and also still be horrific in what it does to people. Right. I think I just, I just feel like, you know, going back to what you were saying about just the way that the, you know, the U.S. military, like, sells people on joining the army. It's like, we know that like governments are so good at selling people on like this one they're like this time it's really necessary you know mm-hmm. mm. and i i would say that like this is this is not an anti-war book that may- maybe that was like a that was a passage that was like war is very lamentable like this is an, an unfortunate thing but it's not really an anti-war statement 
which I think is how some people might interpret it. Yeah. I will say I appreciated the statement where it came because it was right after what I felt was a just pretty racist depiction of these people from mm-hmm. the East, uh, the men from Harrod, where a lot of people like complain about how in the movies, like the only people of color are these dudes on the Oliphants who are like clearly the bad guys and stuff. Yeah. This is canon. This is like yeah. in the book, they are described as men with dark faces, and it's like the first hint of diversity that we've seen, and they are the bad guys. So I was almost relieved to see a like maybe slightly more balanced take from Sam on this because it was the only thing that like prevented me from being like, oh, this is straight up racist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, like that that's the part where I kind of thought like, oh, Tolkien's definitely drawing on some personal experiences here because World War II was also full of um, different like members of the different quote unquote great powers, like pulling their client states and their colonial armies into it. Right. So he probably would have fought you know, against, like, people from Africa and people from the Middle East and stuff like that. Did he fight in World War II? World War I. But probably the same thing was still in play. Right. Well, and it's interesting because I think, like, way back when we first kind of started talking about race and racism in The Lord of the Rings, we really had to sit there and go, a lot of this is implicit bias. And I think this is the not the first time, but maybe the most clear example of pretty explicitly labeling race and pretty explicitly like in the span of like three pages i think we get here are these bad guys who are going off to join sauron's army and by the way they're dark-skinned and then oh look here are these good guys from gondor and by the way they're pale and they have gray eyes and they're tall and hot like it literally (laughs) says good faces that are light like it's right there yeah. Whoa, does it really say that? Uh, the exact words aren't that, but it's within the sentence. He says that they have like, it's it's like good countenances, and he might use the word fair, right in the description of what they look like. Um, yeah, it's real. It's rough. It's, yeah. <laughs> the contrast of having that within just a couple pages is really what highlighted it for me. Like, okay, no, you really do want to just sort of say that the dark-skinned people are the bad ones. Thank you for making it clear. Yeah. yeah. That's an answer to all of our questions and wondering from a year ago when we were sitting there going, oh, we'll have to follow up on this. And, well, folks, we're following up. Right. I don't know, though. I I still don't think it's, like, as straightforward as just, like, here is Tolkien wanting to make the bad guys dark skin. I think, like, if you wanted to be generous, you could say that from his perspective of, of writing this from Britain, which is what he's trying to represent with Middle Earth, People from the South were dark-skinned, and, you know, in his map that he drew where they would be closest to Mordor, they're the most likely allies that we haven't seen before. I don't know. There there are ways you can interpret this where it's not like they are evil because they're dark-skinned. I don't think that that's necessarily the case here, but I do think he had some, like, associations in his mind that were definitely on the racist side, probably as a product of the time period that he lived in again. And so, like, I don't want to say this is as straightforward as, as like an answer to like, yes, Tolkien was racist. Um, right. I think it's it's a little more subtle and more like Tolkien definitely had a lot of the ideas of his time that were a little bit racist. Right. This is actually probably not the most racist thing that will happen in this books. <laughs> right. The, de- <laughs> the depiction of like some brown soldiers and then Sam saying, well, they're actually just being manipulated, you know. 
Yeah. I mean, you said it yourself, like the way that the wild men, I mean, even the fact that they're called the wild men instead of the Dunlanders is like, I know. Yeah. Okay. There, There were choices made. Honestly, I think his consistent description of good people as light skinned and fair is much more noticeable because there aren't a lot of dark skinned people at all. But he makes it really clear that when he's there's a new race of people that someone encounters, that they are fair of skin and have a noble way of and like, it's very, that is very, very obvious that that one is. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think there's a lot of ways to interpret how he views these other groups the very othering um i mean he's got them riding war elephants and they're brown-skinned and basically i think he just put india in his book in a very fantasy way that isn't great (laughs) right (laughs) yeah sam's just upset that he didn't get to do his gap year in peacetime (laughs) exactly I actually think the the most offensive part was when Gollum was talking about like the three roads that they could have taken and Frodo was like, oh, like, would you like to go on this one that was clearly leading to maybe India, I guess? And Gollum was like, no, I don't want to go there. <laughs> I was like, excuse you. <laughs> Gollum doesn't want to get deli belly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and on that note, if y'all have quick fire, we can do quick fire. Okay. So Gollum mentions this several times. He talks about silent watchers. What is mm. he talking about? I have no idea. But he says there are silent watchers like along this road and in this tower that he's taking them to. He's talking about poll analysts uh, like <laughs> Nate Silver. Next. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really genuinely don't have a better answer than that, so... <laughs> I can't remember if there's a mystical thing. Yeah, it might be one of those Lord of the Rings things where it's like, Tolkien has built out this world and he's not going to give us all the answers. Yeah. I don't know that we ever get an answer for that. <laughs> I just googled it and it said, what do we know about them? Very little, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Nate Silver so, confirmed. There uh, it is. <laughs> All right. Uh, Evan, you want to go? Yeah. So this is just a more personal thing. Again, about Faramir. I remembered having a massive, like, vague crush on him uh, when I was younger. And then in the movies, I was disappointed because he was kind of mean. And in this chapter, he's not mean. He's actually quite fair and very pleasant and appreciates the nice manners. And I was wondering, uh, did that match your memories of him? Am I making up the the nice Faramir or the mean Faramir? Because I can't remember. He is definitely meaner in the movies. And I think fairer in the... He's the reverse of Aragorn, right? Like, movie Faramir is kind of eh, and movie Aragorn is great. And then book Aragorn is, like, a piece of shit that we should kick to the curb. And book Faramir, I think, is is a pretty solid dude so far. Yeah, although he probably has some problems. Like, Book Faramir seems like he's, like, a nice person with, like, a lot of problems. Like, he's, like, a little bit too cool about how he's about to die. (laughs) I experienced him as, like, the ultimate tragic hero as a kid. We know Mm. where his story is going, and it's already being foreshadowed. Uh, And I was like, oh, good, he really does seem to be. Like, maybe I remembered him right. I had a crush on both. I had a crush on Book Faramir and Movie Faramir. Um, (laughs) I had a crush on Gollum. (laughs) But my crush on Book Faramir, I don't think came up this early. It comes up more later on in like the Houses of Healing and stuff. But mm-hmm. yeah, definitely there. All right, Wanda. 
I actually don't have one. So I think we can call it. <laughs> Ishani, do you have one? Uh, I think mine is that it's really funny to me that they're like, okay, what is in Kareth Ungle? Who knows? Like, <laughs> and then literally everybody except for Sam and Gollum speaks in Darren, so they should know exactly what that translates to. And they're still just like, well, I don't know what it is, uh, even though it translates to Pass of the Spider. Which what what could be just, up there, Ishani? I don't know, man. I, it's Maybe a there's just a lot of paths. It's just got eight legs. Yeah. yeah. Is it, I mean, <laughs> like, the name of the first giant spider is Ungolian. Why don't they know this? I have so many questions. <laughs> I have so many questions and no answers. Um, but yeah, that's that's my quick fire. It's just like every time I get to this part, I think of that one Tumblr post that's just like, what the fuck, my dudes? And you know what? <laughs> they fucked okay, around and they found out. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Thank you for listening to One Does Not Simply. This episode was edited by Ashani. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. Special thanks to Andrew, to Sneha, and to all of our listeners for joining us on this journey. And if you like what you hear, please give us a rating or a review on whatever platform you listen to. If anybody wants to hear more of what I do, I would love it if you checked out This Planet Needs a Name, a science fiction audio drama that I create. Word. I'm going to be checking it out. And you should too. This is... (laughs) Fuck me. What episode number is this? Uh, Uh, I don't know.